Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project podcast. And today I'm joined by another special guest, York Moore. Welcome, York. Hey, Lisa. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you on. Me and York are our new friends. Um, I'm excited to have him on. Once I heard his story, I was like, you have to come on the podcast. This is amazing. Um, for, uh, before we get into your testimony, just tell our audience a little bit about who you are. Well, I'm York Moore. I've been with a ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for the last 26 years. I live uh, just north of the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan. Go Blue. Been married for close to 25 years. Uh, three kids, uh, one in college, uh, one just graduated high school, another one in elementary school. So I'm paying out of both pockets for college and for and for elementary school. So, Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm not sure if I can agree with University of Michigan being the best <laughs> university, but uh, we'll, we won't uh, make that a thing now. Um, but I'm so excited to have you. Your story is just so amazing. Um, how you came to faith really bless me. And I just want our audience to kind of hear your your testimony. Um, so how did you become a Christian, York? I know that is a, a loaded question, uh, but, but tell a, us a little bit about your journey. Well, I'll tell you in three pieces so that I don't uh, talk too long. And so feel free to interrupt, Lisa, uh, as, you, as you see fit. But I was not raised in a Christian home, was not raised in, in a church environment. In fact, my parents were followers of an atheistic philosopher named Ayn Rand. And uh, my first name is Rand. I'm named after this philosopher. And so <clears throat> when we weren't homeless on the streets of Detroit, uh, we would hang a, a sign on the front of the houses that we would rent. And it would say the Moors the atheists, and we would have a barrel on the side of our house for, for, for burning Bibles and other religious propaganda, as my parents would refer uh, to him as. And, and so I was, I was steeped in atheism. I was homeschooled because in Rand's uh, philosophy, the state is the great enemy of individuality and creativity. And so my parents uh, kept me home from school. Now, this is in the 1970s where it was virtually illegal to do homeschooling. But they were convinced that had they sent me to public education that um, it would have been bad. And, and this is kind of uh, ironic because both of them were educated to the master's degree level. They both had uh, a master's degree in education and they were public school teachers. And so, but I'll never forget the day that I heard the voice of God. I was six years old. I was sitting in the bathtub playing with rubber ducky and battleship, minding my own business when all of a sudden I heard the voice of God. And no one had to tell me that this was the voice of God. I just intrinsically knew 
that this voice that was speaking to me was my creator. I might not have known the right language at the age of six, but I knew who it was that was speaking to me. And so I started engaging in this conversation and uh, you know, thinking nothing of it, it felt very natural, very normal. I felt connected to this voice. And my parents uh, came in and they said, well, who are, you, who are you talking to, Rand York? And I said, well, I'm, I'm talking to God. And they said, oh, we thought we told you that there is no God, that people who believe that God exists, they're, they're weak intellectually, that they, they manufacture this idea of a deity to help them through life. It's like a mental crutch. And so I thought for a minute and I said to my parents, I said, so there's no God? And they said, nope, there is no God. And so they left the, the bathroom and being the naive six-year-old I was, Lisa, I had to at least finish the conversation that I was engaged in. So I looked back up at the ceiling and I said, God, my parents say you don't exist. So I have to stop talking to you today. And uh, that began the first day of the next 14 years of my life, living as if there is no God. And perhaps some of your listeners, um, you know, they, they, they can identify with that. When you try to live your life outside of a relationship with your creator, it just doesn't work. We were designed to have relationship with God. And so over the next several years, a number of things that very predictable things, you know, our, our family fell apart. Uh, my dad got into selling and using drugs. We, we became homeless again. And I found myself living in a, uh, a part of the Detroit area called Inkster, which in my mind is worse than being homeless. Inkster is a, a very, very harsh place. Lots of homicides, uh, toxic fumes. It was at the height of the crack cocaine pandemic. And so it was a very hard time to be a young man. And, um, you know, I, I did all the things that young men do in those kinds of environments, you know, took advantage of women, partied, uh, was very dishonest, lots and lots of things. And um, I remember waking up at the end of my third, at the end of my second year in high school, and I had averaged a straight D average. And my parents always, can, you know, always tried to persuade me to go to college and not only just to go to college, but to go to a great college. And um, I remember waking up at the end of my second year and with a straight D average. And I said, you know, if something doesn't change, I'm going to wind up on drugs like my dad on the streets in prison. All of my options for the future, Lisa, looked pretty hopeless. And so I made a change in the flesh and we don't need Jesus to change our lives. We can change our lives just by doing P90X or keto or whatever. But if we want to actually have an eternal change, we need Jesus. Now, I didn't know that at the time, so I, I simply made a change in the flesh. I cut my hair, changed my wardrobe, asserted myself in school, and I became a straight-A average student for the last two. So you got two years of straight Ds, two years of straight As, which gets you not very much. And so I graduated with a pretty poor GPA, but I still applied to the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan, Go Blue. And, um, you know... When I applied, I'm sure there was laughter in the admissions office as they got my application. I got a rejection notice pretty quickly. And uh, my mom, um, when she read the rejection letter, she said, I'll take care of this. It's a true story. She literally drove up to the university. She went to the admissions office and she begged them to reconsider. And she made a case that I had changed my life. And, you know, I had come from this disenfranchised, uh, you know, upbringing, but I was I was ready to be serious. And so I was admitted under a probationary, probationary, probationary status, which meant if I burped in class, I was going to be out on my ear. And uh, But when I went to college, I fell in love with the whole university, the whole idea of learning, the academic rigor. I became an honor student in multiple departments. And I didn't go to college for the normal reasons, you know, to meet a great girl or to 
get a degree that would lead to a financially secure future. I went to college to discover the meaning of the universe. And here's why. Because if there is no God, there's no transcendence, there's no ultimate meaning to the universe, why live? If there's no, there's, there's no God, then where does meaning come from? And so I studied philosophy because I thought, you know, out of all of the disciplines, the philosophers would probably be the closest to understanding truth and reality. Boy, was I wrong. And I also studied psychology and focused on research methodology, statistical analysis, and these kinds of things. And um, after three years of studying this question, can we have meaning without God, I came to the conclusion that you can't. In fact, I'll never forget, I turned my honors thesis into the chair of our department, and uh, it was basically my uh, conclusion, atheistic existentialist conclusion, there's no God, when we die, we cease to exist, and the best that we can hope for is moment-to-moment -moment pleasure. I'd also just, uh, you know, uh, crossed over the greatest fraternity in America, the Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. I was, uh, you know, having my, my moment in the sun. I was a neophyte on the yard, going to all the step shows, and uh, ladies seemed to like that a lot, and so I was having more success than normal with the ladies. I was at the top of my academic game, the top of my social game, and yet there was an emptiness in my soul that, were, that couldn't be filled with all of the stuff that I was trying to fill it with. And so I said, you know, why don't I just go ahead and kill myself? Because it really doesn't matter if I die and cease to exist tomorrow or 100 years from now. If nihilism is, is the ultimate reality, then why, why live at all? And I was a striver, Lisa. I was always trying to do great at school, great at work, in the fraternity, with, with friends and these kinds of things. And um, when I turned this paper in, to the chair of our department, I'll never forget, I walked to the car and a blast of cold Michigan air, you don't understand this down there in Florida, we have this thing called winter up here, and a blast of cold Michigan air swept the parking lot. And with that wind, I heard the voice of God for a second time, and the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but the Holy Spirit said to me, why do anything? Why do anything? Why strive? And I didn't have an answer for that. And so I said, well, you know, I don't have an answer, and so I, I should probably figure this out, or I should take my life. And so I went on an interviewing spree because I had, you know, read the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and the Quran. I had looked at world religions, and I knew that out of all of the possible gods, if I was wrong about any of them, I'd probably turn out just fine. I'd have lots of opportunities with Buddha or Krishna. I would be absorbed into the Brahmin, or I'd be reincarnated as a cat or something worse. Um, but it was only Jesus. It was only Jesus that I would have a problem with because the Bible says it's appointed unto us once to die and then to face judgment. And what we do with Jesus determines our forever. And so I knew that if the Christians were right, I was going to be in big trouble. So I focused my search on Christians and I went on an interviewing spree. I sat down with Christians, asked them why they believed in God. Boy, was that a mistake. I found that the vast majority of Christians have absolutely no reason to believe in, in the God that they, they say they believe in. Most are cultural Christians. I had a pastor friend who, um, you know, I went to church because the ladies at the time were easier to get along with in the church than they were in the world. And so I had a, a pastor friend named Dave and I sat down with Dave. I said, Dave, how do you know God exists? And he says, well, you know, York, it doesn't really matter if the Bible's God's word or if Jesus was really born of a virgin. How can we know such things? Now, at the time I had no idea that there were liberal Christians who denied the very power of God 
and uh, merely identified with the cultural social ramifications of the gospel. To me, that seemed like a colossal waste of time and energy. If there is no God, just be an atheist. It just acquire as much power and wealth and pleasure as you possibly can. But at the time, it just never occurred to me. So I thought to myself, he's thrown off an entire foundation of his belief system. He has nothing to say to me. And so he gave me some books, and I went on my way. Now, the last thing that I did, Lisa, is that I, I thought, well, maybe God can speak for him or her or itself. And so I began to pray. Never let an atheist tell you that we don't pray. We all pray. And, um, you know, I, I, I started each day for several days, maybe a couple of weeks. I would cross my arms and I'd say, okay, Allah, Buddha, Krishna, he, she, it, whoever you may be, show me the money. And I was looking for the Burger, Burger King, your way, right away, kind of answer from God, skywriting, the angel Moroni to show up at my front door. I was looking for something to demonstrate to me that God exists. Now, looking back, I, I do believe that God was speaking to me in very, very powerful ways, but I didn't have the spiritual eyes to see or the ears to hear. I missed all of what God was trying to say because I was trying to define God in a very specific way on my timetable and on my terms. And uh, it all came to a head December 24th, 1989. And so I'm obviously dating myself. I'm sitting in the, in the movie theater watching The Little Mermaid, not on DVD, not on stream. I'm in person. And I had this atheistic epiphany. All of a sudden it occurred to me, it didn't matter if you were a Christian, if you were a Muslim, an atheist, we're all in the same movie theater. We're all watching the same meaningless cartoon. Here we are on the verge of a national Christian holiday, and all we're doing is entertaining ourselves to death. There is no God. There's only the Little Mermaid. There is no meaning. There's no transcendence. I'm going to kill myself. And so I dropped my fiance off at, the, uh, at her home on Christmas Eve, and I got my Kappa Red sports car with the gold wheels going 90 miles an hour down the freeway. And my plan was to smash my, my car on the viaduct near our home in Inkster. And as I got that twisted sense of courage to take my life, fully intending to kill myself, I aimed that car at the viaduct, and the presence and the power of Jesus filled that car. Now, I wouldn't have used those words at the time, but I had a supernatural divine encounter with the God of the universe, and he steered me to safety in that moment. I'm the original Jesus take the wheel story. I should be getting royalties on the check <laughs> on that, but I haven't seen any checks yet. The last thing I'll say is that that experience wasn't enough to convert me to Christianity. It was enough to get me home that night. And I, I found myself uh, in a cold sweat, you know, on the verge of having, you know, almost killed myself. I was in a cold sweat. I was shaking. And I thought, I don't know what that was, but I'm going to sleep on it. And so I woke up Christmas morning, 1989, in a cold sweat, went to sleep in a cold sweat, woke up in a cold sweat. But for the first time in my life, I prayed a prayer of desperation. I said, God, if that was you last night, I need to know right now because I'm still going to kill myself. So I walked into the next room, and my two older brothers were also home from the greatest university in America. And uh, we were all home for Christmas. And uh, one of my older brothers had brought a picture frame of the poem, Footprints in the Sand. And I had read it before. It's a you know, simple hallmarky kind of, you know, feel-good kind of uh, story. But it's a simple poem about how God cares for us even when we're unaware of his presence. And as I'm reading this poem, the same voice that spoke to me at the age of six, the same voice that spoke to me outside of the university, was the same voice who said three things that changed my forever. He said, number one, I do exist. And number two, 
I'm the reason why you exist. Now, those two data points for a philosopher are all that you need because everything else is a derivative. But the third thing blew me away. He said, number three, I'm the one who kept you from killing yourself last night, which meant that God knew my name. He was intimately involved in my life. He cared enough to step in in a moment of potential eternal catastrophe. And so in tears, I ran into the other room. I had a deep sense that I had wronged God, that I had wronged the world, that I, I was a terrible person in almost every single way at the time. I was very, very selfish, very self-absorbed. And, um, you know, I, I just had this deep sense that I had wronged the world. Now I know that, that I had repentance in my heart over my sin. But I wouldn't have used those words at the time. So I ran into the room and I said, God, if you can take my life and make anything out of it from this day forward, I'm going to live for you. And I literally, Lisa, I thought the, the roof would fly off the house. I thought beams of light would come. I didn't know. I had never been born again before. I wasn't a church guy. And so I didn't know what was supposed to happen, but I thought something should happen. And so after sitting there for several minutes and realizing that you know nothing's happening, all of a sudden I had this overwhelming sense that I needed to tell everybody and ever, anybody about what had just happened. So I spent all of Christmas Day calling my sans, my fraternity brothers, calling my girlfriends and my fiance, calling my friends. Now, imagine you get the phone call and it's Christmas morning and here's Satan on the other line. Hey, guess what? I'm living for God. I don't know which God yet, but I'm living for God. They're like, hello, is this Satan? You know, and I'll hand it back to you, but let me just say this one last thing. So that night, the one, the one good book that the pastor gave me, Pastor Dave, he gave me a stack of books and I, I was in between semesters, and so I wasn't really uh, looking for a big, big book to read. So I picked the slimmest, smallest book, and I read it cover to cover that night. And it told me about the righteousness of Jesus, how God's Son came to this earth to take upon our sin on, on the cross, and how he died on the cross to take away our sin, how he rose again on the third day. And because he was alive, I could know him. I could have forgiveness if I would confess him as Lord. In other words, this simple book shared with me the very gospel message. And that same voice that spoke to me in those previous occasions was that voice that was speaking to me through this book. And so that night I slipped down on my knees and I gave my life to, to Jesus Christ. So that's my story and I'm sticking by it. <laughs> that's a powerful testimony uh, to see how God, uh, how God saves um, those who he has chose. And I'm encouraged by that because it's like you, you didn't really have a person coming to you saying this is the gospel message. Uh, it was God through his power um, changing your heart over time, uh, which is powerful that God works even beyond our human capacity. And it shows us as people who are passionate about evangelism that yeah. God really doesn't need us. He uses <laughs> us, <laughs> but it's a humbling thing as a reminder that God can work outside of us just in case yeah. We forget that. And that salvation is his job. We're called to tell and share, but it is really the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. That's that's powerful, powerful to note and to see how God has has worked in your life in that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a number of people uh, throughout your work, uh, throughout the country and universities that have been blessed immensely uh, by your story. Um, how has your story have how have you seen your story impact others? You know, I, I think the first thing people do when they hear my story, especially if they're religious, 
they say, oh, I, if I had a testimony like that, I also would believe or I would do these things. And, and they kind of look at my story as if it's something to be admired. I got, I got the short end of the stick. I got the bad story. I got the broken home with the dad in and out of jail and on drugs and died at an early age. And oh, by the way, he, you know, uh, fathered 26 kids with five women. And I got the, I got the bad story. The good story is the story where you were raised in a, a good Christian home where mom and dad loved the Lord and read their Bible and uh, tried their best to, to love their children and taught them the scriptures. That's the story that I want my kids to have. And thankfully, my, all three of my kids have had that experience and that story. And I think the other thing that happens when people hear my story is it opens a window. And this is really, Lisa, the power of testimonies, right? So the reason why as Christians, it's important for us to share not only our conversion story, but our ongoing faith story is that what a testimony does, it provides a window for the outside world to look in and see what it looks like to be at home with God. And as we look in the window of a testimony, what we see is, oh, that's what a fire in the fireplace looks like. Oh, that's what a good family meal on the family table looks like. You begin to get this holistic view of what the good life actually looks like as you have a relationship with God. So I, I want to just challenge you, you know, listeners that, uh, you know, you share your story. And it doesn't have to be this big, dramatic, near-death experience like mine. I, I think the majority of people come to faith in Christ because they have a relationship with a person who is just an authentic, transparent person who's walking the walk and living their life as it was, in, as it was designed to live, to be lived. Mm -hmm. That's powerful and helpful. And I'm reminded of that scripture that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and testimonies are, are powerful because you see that's the incarnational um, uh, approach that we see when we share our testimony, that people see the tangible, not just the miracles that were done in the Bible. That, those are helpful, but when they see the miracles done in us through our lives and through the transformation mm -hmm. power of the Holy Spirit. Um, is there anything else about your testimony that you would like to share that we haven't that you haven't got a chance to share that you think would be helpful to our audience? Well, I would say that that was my initial conversion, my salvation story. I had a second conversion that was, I think, uh, just as transformative and powerful. You know, I spent the next 10 years of my life from the age of 20 to 30 preaching Christ, sharing Christ in the streets, preaching in the pulpit, you know, traveling the country, writing books, persuaded that Jesus was the greatest person that I had ever met, persuaded the gospel was the greatest idea I've ever heard. Um, and I was solely, you know, singularly focused on that. In some ways, I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm the national evangelist for InterVarsity, and so it's my job to preach the gospel. But I'll never forget uh, my second conversion. I was sitting in an auditorium, about 25,000 people, listening to a man with a funny buzz cut talking about a problem that I had never heard about. And as I listened to Gary Haugen, the founder of a ministry called the International Justice Mission, talk about modern day slavery, my heart broke. And I had a come to Jesus moment uh, that has shaped my life forever. And for the first time, I thought, you know, either this, this guy is a fantastical liar or this is the greatest humanitarian problem in the world. And I'm going to find out uh, which one is the, is the case. And so, but it was the first time in my Christian journey that it occurred to me that Jesus was after more than just souls. 
that Jesus was after the whole ecosystem. You know, in Revelation chapter 11, it tells us that, the, that there will come a day where the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. God is after systems and structures. He is committed to bringing justice uh, and renewal to broken people and broken places. And I, I knew all of those things theoretically, but as I began to become acquainted in the year 2000 with this problem of modern day slavery, I thought my Jesus isn't big enough. I need a bigger Jesus. Now, thank the Lord, I didn't have to go out and, and make one. That if you actually read your Bible, you find out that Jesus is actually much larger than just uh, you know, saving individuals individually from their individual hell. Jesus is about restoring broken people, broken systems. He's after tribes and tongues and languages and these kinds of things. And so I came away from that conference determined to change everything. I called my wife and I said, our spending is about to change. My preaching is about to change. Our whole lives are about to change. And uh, in the early days, I started doing these what we call invitationals. I would gather NGO leaders, non-governmental organization leaders, onto public university campuses, giving them exposure to foundations and church networks and uh, people of power and law and academia and commerce, the seven mountains, if you're familiar with that concept. And I brought these NGO leaders together with these community leaders, and the results were just explosive. I mean, these campaigns, the NPR, the Boston Globe picked them up, and they, became, they began to um, expand. And these were $500,000 million campaigns we were doing all across the country. We were working with members of the U.S. House and the state attorney general's offices across the country and good corporations, uh, leaders from places like Delta and Hilton and, you know, people who managed massive amounts of wealth. In fact, I'll never forget what we did one of our events in uh, Manhattan. We had 100 events over the course of 10 days. And one of those events was with 60 people that managed $70 billion of assets on behalf of corporations and uh, one of the executive VPs of Merrill Lynch was there and helping host this conversation about what it looks like to actually responsibly invest and to challenge our, our for-profit corporations uh, to create better policies and procedures to safeguard uh, women and men who are on the margins, who are at risk, or who are actively being tra uh, trafficked. In fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, I was talking with a Delta employee and her training on anti-trafficking kicked in as she encountered a likely trafficking victim on one of her flights. But in those early days, Lisa, 2000, like people weren't talking about trafficking. And when you did talk about trafficking, people assumed that you were making most of it up. And, uh, and so those were very, very hard days. But these campaigns really, I believe, began to change the conversation. Because what we were doing was bringing tens of thousands of people together around a common good gospel truth issue and that is that people have inherent value, that they have inherent worth, that there are no disposable people. And as a result of these campaigns, I did these campaigns for 15 years, uh, we, we helped state, uh, change state laws. Uh, we helped pass brand new laws. We helped uh, at the federal level as well. We created new uh, bed capacity in various states for trafficking victims. Uh, we created foundations and partnerships between foundations and frontline workers did a lot of work with, you know, within Cambodia as well. So we would do these campaigns and then we would send money overseas to where trafficking is exponentially worse. And so my point in sharing this story with you, Lisa, is that oftentimes we think about our faith way too small. And what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus isn't just that you get to go to heaven one day. 
It's that you actually get to join God in making heaven right here on earth. Wherever there is brokenness, wherever there is weeping, wherever there is injustice and equity, that's the invitation of the Spirit of God to his women and men to join him in the work of making all things new, of creating what should always be the case in the here and now. That's powerful. And I love how your your experience led you to do the work because people now are having like experiences where they're like, oh, man, I know that this is what God wants me to do. But then after the weekend is up at the conference or after the week of of zeal goes away, they do nothing. And so Mm -hmm. it's encouraging to see someone who took that message and and ran with it and created systems to change the systems that were working against against us. So Mm -hmm. thank thankful for for the work that you've you've done in that area. You you mentioned that you wrote a, a few books. Tell our audience um, about the books you, you wrote, just a little bit about that. Well, during those initial years where I was just laser focused on preaching Christ, and I still am, so I don't want to you know, miscommunicate here, but I wrote my first book called Growing Your Faith by Giving It Away. Uh, and it's just a simple book about how you can share the gospel with people you like, who you don't like, who don't like you, uh, who you know, who you don't know. And so it's an all-purpose uh, personal witness book. The second book, uh, it really focuses on my work on anti- anti-trafficking. It's called Making All Things New, God's Dream for Global Justice. And that book looks at the foundation for why we actually should be fighting for justice on the earth as a Christian value. The third book is called Do Something Beautiful, A Guide to Everything and uh, a Place for You in That Story. And so uh, Do Something Beautiful is a book uh, Moody Publishers published that focuses really on how to live a life of meaning and beauty by being involved in people's lives and communities that are in need of good news. And then my fourth book just came out. I co-authored with Dr. Gary Chapman, who is the author of The Five Love Languages, and it's called Seen, Known, Loved. And it's just a very, very small, short book that helps people cross the line, make a decision to come to faith in Christ, looks at their love language and how God is speaking their love language and gives them an opportunity to actually come into the family of God. That's awesome. That's awesome. How can uh, people get in contact with you on social media? All of the social media channels are all the same, at York Moore. I think I'm the only York Moore, at least this side of the pond. I'm the only uh, York Moore. I prefer Instagram and Twitter. And so, uh, you know, but I'm pretty easy to find. If you just Google York Moore or R York Moore, uh, you'll you'll find me pretty pretty readily. Well, thank you so much, York. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm sure our audience uh, will be blessed by it. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. Remember, you can uh, catch all our past podcasts wherever your favorite podcasts are streamed, or on YouTube or Facebook. Remember to get our book here. I'm about to drop it here (laughs) through eyes of color a contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why it's our curriculum you can take online courses uh or watch our past conference at learn.jew3project.org and you can catch all our content at jew3project.org or you can become a monthly partner um or give one time at jew3project.org backslash donate here at the jew3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it until next time grace and peace and god bless thank you so much for listening to another episode of the jew3 project podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode 
You can tune into all our past episodes at www.ju3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jude3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jude3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.